Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Mastering Dungeons. I'm Sean Merwin, here with Teos Abadia. Hey Teos, how's it going? Sean, it's going great. And uh, I believe the next time we record is going to be live. The next time we record will be probably when this episode drops. Because we are we are doing a panel at Gamehole Con on Thursday morning. And generally, these episodes drop on Thursday. So as you're listening to our voice on this recording, you might also be able to be in the panel where we are doing Mastering Dungeons live at Gamehole Con in Madison, Wisconsin. So do not listen to both at the same time. That's a bad idea. Don't be at Gamehole Con listening to the one we just dropped because that's too much Sean. It could be quite an experience, though. It could be, it could be, you know, sort of the, the quintessential, you know, mastering dungeons experience to be listening to two episodes at the same time. Yeah. It would be like uh, seeing sound or dark side of the moon when you're watching Oz, like one of those things. Synesthesia. Is that what it's called? I'm going to go with that. Okay. But yes. No, but yes. (laughs) So, uh, so yeah, we will, we will uh, record there and next week's episode will likely be a live, uh, the live recording of of the podcast with with the audience there and the audience asking questions. So uh, looking forward to doing that. Looking forward to uh, seeing you in live and in person at GameOcon. Yeah, absolutely. I'm so excited. Uh, even if I just flew in today, I'm excited to fly again two days from now and <laughs> uh, and do this because it's it's really cool. I haven't been to a gaming convention in uh, uh, since the last GameHolcon. So yeah. Yep. Same same here. So here we go. Uh, we do have a, uh, a listener tweet bag message. So I want to thank David Somerville, who is at SMRVL, who gives us this. If 1D&D skews, skews more 6E than 5.5, and Watsy opts not to, ex- not to extend the OGL or makes D&D beyond a walled garden, might Critical Role become the next Paizo? stewarding an OGL-compliant 5e-like system under their very popular brand. What effect might that have on the hobby? And all very astute, all very good questions. Um, I want to sort of break it down, uh, at least in my opinion on this, um, to to say if they make D&D Beyond a Walled Garden assumes that it's not already, and it is. Um, They, you do not see any third-party content on D&D Beyond that I'm aware of. Um, they they have put up things like Acquisitions Incorporated and the Critical Role stuff, uh, but that is Watsy published stuff, so right. that really doesn't count. Is that likely to change going forward? I highly doubt that they will put any third-party content on there unless they charge an exorbitant licensing fee to allow that um, I can't. And I don't even know that, that there's a price that makes it worthwhile for them. Right. So I, I just think that answer is going to be no. Like, yeah. like, yeah, I think, I think, I think you're right that we are in agreement so far. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the OGL, if it is there, what will it look like? It's uncertain what it will look like. Uh, but even if there is no open gaming license for 6E, we'll call it 6E, uh, Critical Role and their press called Darrington Press, uh, is in a much different situation and position than Paizo is. Paizo, despite the narrative that they wanted their customer base to hear, was very well supported by Wizards of the Coast. Um, Wizards, as as publishers of Dungeon and Dragon, Paizo was um, the the licensing fee that they were supposed to pay to Wizards was often just not that taken. Um, wizards would give them lots and lots of advice and money and everything to keep the, them going. So uh, the, the, this narrative that Wizards and Paizo were always at each other's throats is is not true. Um, and the way things were handled, Watsi put Paizo in a perfect position. Um, they had helped them learn how to be publishers. They had helped them be publishers. And so when 4th edition came out, Paizo sort of had everything that they needed in the 3E open gaming license to just republish 3rd edition with some minor tweaks and make a lot of money with a, with all the content that they needed and the existing player base 
intact. Um, you with me so far? Yeah, yeah, I fully agree. Um, and and it's it's a pretty unique situation. Paizo also had people that fundamentally understood the underpinnings of third edition. Sure. Uh, both through their extensive background in things like organized play and in all of that publishing they'd been, been doing. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't like they were hiring out somebody who understood mechanics for an article. Mm-hmm. Those people were staff and many of oh, them. Yeah. So yeah. they were so good at it, right? They were, they were in a perfect position to take this on. Yep. So almost no, but nobody today, well, very, very few companies today are in anything like that position in terms of the knowledge, mm-hmm. right? I can think of a few companies that really get how 5e is put together to that extent. Um, but they're not officially backed by wizards and in that kind of situation. Right. 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 I mean, they're, they're both in the same town. They, they, <laughs> right. They, they, yeah. they had crossover with their staff. Oh yeah. Right. Yeah. So the, so the knowledge uh, and the infrastructure was already set up for ISO. You know, Critical Role and Darrington Press have an incredible fan base. But Darrington Press is not currently in the same situation Paizo was as a game design and publishing company. They could certainly hire people to do that. And they work with great game designers as freelancers, right? Hannah Rose and, and James Hake and James Dracasso and a bunch of people. Um, so could they become a great game design and publishing company? Absolutely. Would they want to? I, I don't know. I don't know why they would, given the amount of money they can make as entertainers becoming yeah. a game design company. I don't know that it's it would be worth their while. Uh, that doesn't mean they won't try it. That doesn't mean they don't want to. I just don't I, know I if it makes a, sense. I, I don't, it would be hard to say that I disagree with this, though I think that here there's a little more freedom in how I think it could play out. Um, and, and I wrote a blog post sort of looking at this, that if there's any competitor to D&D, it probably would be Critical Role, but I wouldn't view it as a, as a competitor, right? Mm-hmm. Like you could right. argue they are or that they could become one, but I think it would be foolish for Wizards at least to look at it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, critical Role is sort of on the other side of they are sort of on the side where one wants to get to you want to get to the side to where you can launch an animated cartoon show mm-hmm. right you right. want to be in that entertainment side not in the selling paper books for 25 to 50 bucks in a gaming store that's that's right. that's the place you want to leave right? and, and making only five dollars on every sale <laughs> right yeah <laughs> yeah we're, we're we're at best half of your cost is lost and probably you're just keeping a quarter of, of what you sell. Um, so I, I think that, that, uh, you know, and Paizo worked hard to get out of the publishing space with that MMO and lost uh, millions trying mm-hmm. to, to make that bet. Right. Um, so I, I, I think that critical role and, and their Darrington press is, is a g- good investigation of opportunities there. And that could certainly lead to something down the road. You know, they may want to, it just may be the thing they want to do is to create their own their own RPG. Mm-hmm. And they may potentially even be good at it. But that's not that what they would want to replace what they do with. I, I think that would be monetarily foolish. It's yeah. cool if, if artistically they want to do it, 100% I'm all for it. But, um, but monetarily, they want to be in this area of entertainment. And, and that's, that's the key. Right. And I think it's important to remember, too, that they can make more money. Critical Role, Daring to Press, could make more money catering to their fans who are not players of the game than they can to the people who are players of the game. And could they lead a bunch of different companies? Yes. But again, if, if, if Darrington press made its own game and said, we're going to have an open gaming license and third party publishers, please come. They're still going to get maybe 10% of what the overall D and D game gets. And so instead of getting these third-party publishers, instead of getting 10% of $100 million, you're getting 10%, you know, you're getting a, a small, small portion of $10 million, mm-hmm. which then it really doesn't become worthwhile to, yeah. uh, to, to your bottom line to do that. So I, I anything could happen. 
and there are many, many variables that are going to go into this when when the next iteration of D&D drops and whether there is or isn't an open gaming license and who can step forward to create a space if Wizards of the Close closes off the spaces that we currently have. Um, but it's think, it's really complicated. <laughs> I think something that is possible is that if Wizards were to make a very bad 6E, right, something that's just, it's a stinker, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which I would say... And, and some people will disagree with me on this, but I would say no edition of D&D has just been a complete stinker right. uh, relative to the space, you know, to all the RPGs that existed at the time, right? They've actually been really, very good, really well designed, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of fun and heralded by people all around. And while they may not have been uh, loved by everybody in the in the group, say the way 4E was, right? It was divisive. Uh, it's still a really well-made game. And mm-hmm. made a lot of people happy and sold more than most RPGs we even dream of trying to sell. Right? right. So it was really a success for anybody except for Wizards of the Coast, which wanted sort of this enormous explosion the way that it's finally managed to do with 5e. Um, so I think that's that's always an important thing to to keep in mind how how different this industry is. But if and for Wizards specifically, if Wizards somehow designed such a bad edition and really just did such a fumble that people turned elsewhere they would probably not turn to just one place they'd probably Mm -hmm. turn to a number of places as we've seen in the past and that doesn't necessarily hurt wizards that much so it really would take something unparalleled in in Mm -hmm. our short but you know the history that we have uh, for that to really derail things to where everybody is somewhere else and even the piezo times as dark as they sometimes seem it's still wizards doing really, really well, right? Yeah. Still yeah. wizards being in a position that any other RPG would have liked to have been in. Yep. So I'd love to come back to this discussion in let's say two years. And we'll <laughs> see and we'll yeah. see where we stand. Um so thank you for that uh question, David. And uh thank you for listening. Now let's get into our news segment. Uh first there is a new D&D documentary on the horizon. Hasbro and their E1 uh, brand are backing this film, which will be co-directed by Joe Manganiello and Kyle Newman. Uh, Joe Manganiello will, will be producing this film alongside his brother, as well as others. And the role-playing game historian John Peterson has been named an executive producer. Um, do you want to talk more in detail about what's going to be in this? Yeah, it's, it sounds pretty interesting. Um, I guess they've been working on this for some time, securing the rights of old footage. And they say this includes more than 400 hours of archived, quote, unquote, never before seen film from the early days. So that's hopefully more interesting than, you know, Gygax eating a sandwich or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but maybe it is some neat things like, you know, what the offices look like or who knows, right? Something, you know. That, that, that are things that we wonder about but never get to see. So that would be cool. Um, there'll be, of course, celebrity interviews as Joe plays D&D, basically with the people that he plays with at home, right? It'll be Tom Morello, Vince Vaughn, people that are already in his LA game. Um, but that's neat. You know, that's good. People like that. Um, it may not be what, what any one of us uh, gets super, super excited about, even if you're a raging against the machine fan. Um, but it appeals to a lot of people and brings eyeballs to such a project. They want to make this, of course, the definitive documentary feature about the world's greatest role-playing. I don't know. We'll see, you know, (laughs) but every documentary, every book about the game is always fascinating for us. Um, and it'll come out in 2024 for the 50th anniversary of D&D. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, looking forward to that. Um, we go from a new documentary to a new video game, um, This new video game has been described as derived from the Dungeons and Dragons universe and developed on the Unreal 5 engine. This game is being created by Invoke Studios, a new Wizards of the Coast owned game studio in Montreal, led by many of the team who worked on the 2021 Dark Alliance game for Took Games. So it sounds like Took folded, the people from Took... uh, went over and created a new Invoke Studios and they're still under the Wizards of the Coast umbrella. Yeah, um, so it's almost like Wizards renamed it and realigned yeah. it or you know, who knows whatever happens there in corporate speak. But um, yeah. but that's interesting. And and, and I, I heard, I never played the 2021 Dark Alliance game, 
but the reviews I read and the the word of mouth stuff I heard was that it was pretty wretched. Um, I didn't try it either, but um, yeah. but I thought, yeah, again, enough of the things that I heard just didn't seem, and what I watched, it was not the kind of game that I'm super excited to play. So, yeah. um, so I did not try it. Yeah. So so that's interesting. It's it's also interesting to note that uh, CEO Hasbro, uh, Hasbro CEO Chris Cox has noted in in the last year or so that there are at least six Dungeons and Dragons video games in development right now. Oof. And if you go to the Wizards of the Coast job section, you see four of four co- different companies working on digital products for Wizards of the Coast owned by Hasbro and or Wizards of the Coast. <laughs> you have Art Type Entertainment, that was the former bo- former BioWare team in Austin, Texas that are quote unquote assembling a world-class team to build a multi-platform role-playing game set in a brand new science fiction universe. So okay. they're they're under the wizard's umbrella and they're not even working on D&D. You have Invoke Studios, which we just talked about. You have Skeleton Key Studio, uh, a video game design firm also in Austin, Texas. So I don't know if they're somehow related to Archetype or a separate entity. And then you have Atomic Arcade that's working on a AAA G.I. Joe game, which is owned by Wizards of the Coast. Uh and Hasbro, yeah. and they're there in North ex- Carolina. External relationship. I mean, I can't confirm whether I was there just now seeing them. I, I wasn't. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I confirm I was not there. But okay. um, but yeah, that is that is interesting. And then they've got these things they have in the past. We've heard about other projects that are in development with other studios that Watsi doesn't directly own, right? So right. Uh, and and this is the kind of thing that that goes back to that tweet bag question, which is you know, the scale of what D&D can do, where you are funding six Dungeons and Dragons video games. Um, and and when Dark Alliance didn't do well, right, it was a loss for them, as I understand, at least mm-hmm. at the, you know, in whatever particular quarter year we were covering the news financially, they just write off that expense mm-hmm. in a way that no other RPG company can, right? Not even <laughs> close. And so that's just an operating at a at a different scale, right? That that even a place like Critical Role cannot, because it it is as much as they may be making millions here and there, they have an enormous staff, right? And and it's not easy. Or we saw that with MCDM, printer issues go wrong, it threatens your ability to move forward, right? And you must yep. resolve that quickly so you don't tie yep. up funds. And you know this leads right into the next bit of news, which is the Forbes article that asks whether D and D could be the next big fantasy success. So it, this was an interview that Forbes did in a sort of an opinion news piece that they did. They, they interviewed Cynthia Williams, the new president of Wizards of the Coast. Uh, the article gave many interesting statistics and questions. And basically what it said was, we've seen uh, Harry Potter. We've seen Lord of the Rings. We've seen Game of Thrones become multi-billion dollar uh, impetus for content and a big earning vehicle in this fantasy realm. So is Wizards poised to be that next big thing? And why haven't they done it already, right? Yeah, and why haven't they done it already? And so, you know, a lot of the numbers they were throwing around in the article, we've already discussed about, you know, the rising popularity with a younger audience, more diverse audience, uh, more women, more minorities, and so on and so on and so on. Um, uh, but what, what did you take away from this this article? Um, I mean, I, I, so what I like about this article, it, 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 it hammers in on something that we've said often, which is that D&D has this enormous potential, right? It has this incredible potential to capture people because there are so many people who have had a touch point with D&D. One of the things they cleared up in this article was there's a number of their uh, floating around of, of sort of how many million people have played the game. Um, I forget what the number is. It's somewhere here in our story notes, but the um, it's 50 million was the number I saw yeah, in the article. Yeah. And that number is people who've ever touched D&D across any edition, right? So they, they kind of clarified that. And, you know, okay, as true as that number may be, it's still a big number out there of, of, of all those people. And that is the potent that does create this potential for that kind of growth. I, now it's not guaranteed, right? 
Lord of the Rings, Game of Thrones, those kinds of things, they are different. And it's mm-hmm. easier somewhat to work with those than it is with what is basically a game engine and the mm-hmm. potential for your stories to be created. That's very different than having those stories as a novel provides. Right? We can take a Harry Potter book and we can say, make a movie out of this. You can't really take, you know, Vault of the Drow and as easily say, make a movie out of this because there are no actor roles. <laughs> you know, the players are us, right? Like, right. And what happened isn't there because nothing did happen. It's it's prepared for things to happen. Right. right? Yeah. I mean, that, that's that's exactly it. If people are asking how come D&D can't do what all these other things did, it's because they are novels with a remarkable set of characters and a set story. Yeah. And D&D is not set up that way. D&D is meant for us. Now, we can say, well, look at how well Drissa did. Yes. And that's an exception, an exception because it is a novel based on the game, uh, not a movie based on a novel. So yeah, novels are very different than movies. You're not going to earn $9 billion dollars like Harry Potter did with 11 movies based yeah. on the Driss novels. You're just not going to do it. Well, and, and the Driss novels have the tough... You know, Wizards has the tough luck that their most popular novels, which I, I forget what we said, there's something like 37 of them or something, some enormous number of them, all deal with a very difficult issue to cover that Wizards is trying to sort of change, right? Yep. The drow and how they're portrayed. And so mm-hmm. you would have to really sizably rework that to make it work for today's audiences and and to be what the story should be and and should have been um so and of course there are lots of other novels they could draw from but it it gets harder it gets harder to to choose something that you would think is for sure a success so you know we'll see what they do with the movie and how Mm -hmm. that goes um but it but it's not as easy to get them there but that potential exists and to me that's what this is really about it's that idea that D&D operates on another scale and it has a potential that other games don't or definitely that is true. Um, Even if they have better or clearer stories, just the scale and the touch point to the audiences, right? It's just right. Yeah. And I mean, what are some of the more popular role playing games out there now? Some of them are based on uh, established stories, right? The Star Wars game, the yeah. Star Trek game, uh, you know, mm-hmm. the the uh, the one that had the huge Kickstarter. I've tried to uh, the Avatar. Uh, yeah. the, the last Airbender yeah. roleplay game, right? Which isn't even out yet, as far as I know. King in Reverse, but, yeah. Blade Runner games and Alien yeah. games and things exactly. like that. Exactly. Sure. So, uh, so it goes in the opposite direction just fine because you're going from a huge audience down to a niche audience rather than trying to go from a niche audience yeah. out to a a larger uh, audience for a movie. So and it'll be interesting. Things like, you know, Warhammer is being worked with, uh, Blades in the Dark is being worked with. Mm-hmm. Um, We've seen a leverage TV show, right? Just like there's a leverage RPG. Um, so th- there are some opportunities there to to work there. It's not like D&D is the only option, but I think that scale of it just creates a whole, it's one thing to say, you know, I'm going to make a um, show about thieves and I'm going to use Blades in the Dark as the concept. That's great. And that gonna, that's going to bring in a few fans, but that's not a household name the right. way that D&D is. And so it could very well succeed as an awesome show. But D and D is already going to come in with those touch points that are just yeah. fantastic. <laughs> yeah, and well, this I think the movie and how well it does at the box office, discounting any strange you know things that happen, natural disasters that weekend or you know whatever. <laughs> right. It'll be interesting to see how the first run of that movie and how it, it its worldwide gross over a month or so. Uh, compares to Lord of the Rings and those things to see if D&D is the cultural touch point that we've seen it moving toward or if we're not quite there yet. Yeah. So oh, I'm, I'm excited. I can't believe that, you know, March, I mean, it's right around the corner and uh, yeah. so much hinges on it. And I'm, I mean, just, I just hope it's awesome and that I'm super excited by it. But yeah. from an industry perspective, there is so much rioting on this movie. For every RPG out there, right? I mean, yep. just oh, for sure. Just to get random members of the public to go, what are role playing games and how do mm-hmm. I get into them? Right, would just be 
great if this were a huge success. Exactly. All right, so that is our news. So let's move on to our main topic today. We're going to keep this a little bit short, uh, but we did want to talk about the one D&D playtest packet and what they have done with feats. So you want to lead us gently uh, into this topic about feats and and what what this new packet tells us? Oh, yeah, like like a down comforter. Uh, Mm -hmm. (laughs) We're given a number of um, kind of an an introductory section that breaks down feats and talks to us about them. And we have sort of sidebar and they say a number of different things. I'll start with the sidebar, which is that feats... You know, we saw when we talked about the classes, how the epic boon idea was rolled in. And now your your level 20 gives you an epic boon. Mm-hmm. And your what used to be called the capstone power now is at 18th level. Well, so we see here this sidebar that says that when you get to level 20, hey, you know what you can do when you keep playing <laughs> is give them bonus feats every 30,000 experience points mm-hmm. instead of giving them epic boons. Right. Which surprised me because, I mean, A, you already have epic boons, and I know you're you're working them into the capstone, but there are still many epic boons, and one would expect that there'd probably be more in, in new books based right. on these changes. But they're going to even work feats harder to say, well, just keep giving your players more feats at level 20 every 30,000 experience points. And I, I, it seems like an interesting amount of emphasis right. to put on level 20 and yeah. And just to even like, I'm like, okay, let's get rid of experience points. And, and then, you know, they're sort of doubling down with, okay, yeah, keep giving experience points once you read level 20. If you're actually giving experience points at all in levels one through 20. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, their, their books don't even mention XP anymore. And, and here they are saying to do this. Well, yeah. Um, so then the other things we get, uh, prerequisites. So a lot of feats have prerequisites. Many of them have level prerequisites, um, but others as well as possible. And we see a lot of fourth level feats in, in this packet. Um, and some of them that require ability scores. We also see that they can have a repeatable tag that pretty much every one of these has. And it says either yes or no. Basically, can you take it more than once? And almost always it's no, which to me, just get rid of that line for 90% of these things because I'm just mm-hmm. reading. <laughs> you know, I'd rather you just say yes or put repeatable on it when it is. Um, right. But that's just me. Um, but that's sort of an interesting concept, right? The default is you can only take a feat once, but sometimes there will be that exception. <laughs> Looking over the packet, many feats are tweaked. Uh, kind of one of the things that has been very surprising to people is that often the feat is like it was before or pretty close, but now you'll also get plus one to an ability score. Sean, mm-hmm. Merry Christmas. Yeah, we we want you to really dig into these feats. And we will give you a feat that's called ability score improvement. So if you want to bump any ability score by two or increase two ability scores by one, you can do that, of course. But let's uh, let's give you just a little something to tease you into taking one of these feats yeah and and i think this is where that breaks down it's one of those things where you go wait a minute you know you you told me during 5e being constructed you know it's really very simple every feat has to stand up to well i could get plus one in two different things Mm -hmm. and now you're taking that same feat that theoretically in fifth edition published in 2014 was equitable with choosing two plus ones and you're telling me you still get that and a plus one on top of it. Well, I, I know what that tells me. These feats are stronger than the yeah. option of just choosing two plus ones. And yeah. I mean, you look at any one of these and you think, yeah, that's worth giving up one plus to get mm-hmm. all these, you know, this grab bag of tricks on top of a plus one. Uh, and not to mention that, of course, because you can reach a 20 and an ability score and that's your cap, then you, you need to be fishing for other options. So it it really just uh, further cements that wizard's view is everybody's going for feats and they may yeah. sort of say otherwise, but realistically everybody's going to go to the, down the feet rabbit hole and a DM that doesn't will probably look bad to their players. Right. Right. Yeah. One of the things I thought was interesting is about these prerequisites and it's almost like they're adding these prerequisites, not to stop people from taking them, but from, 
trying to protect a player from his or herself. Um, mm, yes. By right. the actor saying, has a decent charisma. Right. It, don't take the actor feat unless your charisma is high, because everything that it gives you hinges on a charisma check. So if you have a very low charisma, uh, this isn't going to do you any good. Yeah, and, and the prerequisites are even usually a 13, right? It's not like we're talking about 15 or 16 or yeah. 17. It, they're just saying, like, you know, don't come into this feed if it's not somehow of interest to you, which is not that big a prerequisite. Right. But it, 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 it that does take away from the design um, contribution of feats in games in general, which is we want you to be, be able to build any sort of character you want. Right. This is telling you that's not really what we're saying here. Right. We do want you point. to be, build any character you want, as long as it's going to be effective as well. That's that you know you you make a great point there in that there have been times when I've taken something like an actor feat really because I wanted that sort of ability to do the mimicry, but now it's really digging into this charisma check and. And I need to hit a 15. And so it is really sort of baking in that idea that I need to be a charisma character to do it. And then same thing with athlete or any of these, your, your trunk is now the way jumping is based and so on. So yeah, you are sort of pushing for this concept. I haven't thought about that. That's a great point. Yeah. And making it 13 plus uh, as a prerequisite, it means you also get to add plus one to it. So you'll be getting that at least a 14 so at least a plus two in in any of those things that you're trying to do with the feet that you're taking and one of the things that i mean you know i could be wrong on this but i suspect we're not seeing all the feats that would be in a final book we're seeing the ones that are in this packet mm -hmm. um and, and somewhat i kind of from a content perspective i kind of hope that right that there are going to be some some additional some additional thoughts some new surprises and things like that these tend to be reworks of what we already have and i mean clearly they get stronger that is that is something here but they change in, in noticeable ways uh at times to nerf things that need nerfing or to clarify things that need clarification so a great example is crossbow expert which now in its wording really puts the word crossbow where it should have to begin with right. so that you can't get around other class features and issues uh, now it's really talking about this is for crossbows. Yep. Yeah. Um, Adding just with crossbows uh, at the end of every sentence yeah. uh, is it makes a big difference. Makes a big difference. Uh, um, I, I thought it interesting yeah. that for uh, for athlete, it now talks about the jump action mm -hmm. rather than did we talk about this last time? Yeah. Yeah. yeah the jump had changed. How? I don't think we super went into it because we haven't hit the rules gloss here, but just, you know, a little bit that it's now a check versus a flat number. Yeah. So now yeah. an athlete gives you advantage on it. Yeah. And it jumping becomes an action, but we'll, an we'll, action. we'll talk about that when we get down the road. Oh, uh, yeah. We have a feat like charger. And I wanted to mention this for just, mm. you know, just, just a bit of clarification about how important wording is when you get to feats, because they really in an exception-based system, they will be the exceptions. And if you don't be very clear on what those exceptions are, you get some pretty weird things. So with charge attack, uh, which is one of the riders of the charger feet, it says if you move at least 10 feet in a straight line immediately before hitting with an attack as part of the attack action on your turn, you get to choose one of these following benefits. Add a D8 bonus to the damage roll, push a target up to 10 feet and provide uh, provided that uh, you want to move something that's at least one size larger than you or smaller. Uh, and then you can only benefit once per turn. It doesn't say melee attack. So technically, if you could with a bow charge to move 10 feet towards something and then shoot it with your bow and arrow, you could push oh, wow. uh, the target up to 10 feet. And there's no save for that. There's no... Uh -huh. right? there, there's no... Uh, so, right, yeah. that, j j that's powerful enough as it is, but without you saying melee attack, uh, it it is 
something that they will obviously get feedback on. Hopefully people will note that and they will the fix thing it. It says is you move in a straight line. It doesn't say towards, towards the target. Yes, I know. So as an archer, I could move 10 feet back. Right. And then when I hit you, I get to do a D8 extra damage. So it becomes a, a very strong feat for an archer, you know, mm-hmm. ranger type character because you now get this benefit. Oh, yeah. Good point. I had not seen that. I like that. Yeah. So it's right. It's just, again, that, that this is why they play test. So this isn't a criticism of it. It's just mm-hmm. the importance of yeah. play testing and seeing these things because this is how things break or this is how 10 minutes after a book is released, there's a Rada fixing yeah. something and <laughs> the, pup, the print book becomes outdated uh, yeah. with the errata that they do online. Um, uh, yeah. yeah what, what else caught your eye oh uh, gosh let me see um, I thought that durable was interesting because you get advantage on uh, your death saving throws but then as a bonus action you can expend one of your hit dice roll the die and regain a number of hit points equal to the roll so you're basically healing yourself as a bonus action if you take this feat which yeah. if you are in a game where you do not take lots of short rests and use hit dice to heal that way where you're constantly getting long rests at higher levels. This is, this is a pretty powerful thing. Um, you don't, in other words, you don't need to take a short rest to get back your hit points outside of yeah, combat. You could just use your bonus action over and over again to roll all your hit dice. If you want it's not a ton of hit points. Like if you were a D 10 class and you had, you know, plus three from your con, you know, that's mm-hmm. not, enormous right you know eight points you're getting back that's that's not the end of the world in terms of broken but maybe if you have some other benefit that you know grants you more um to the to your hit die roll or something like that you had a way to maximize it there there have been some things in the rules so there might be some ways that you could you know work that yeah i I think my, my point more was it it's it could be a very strong feat if if it's if hit if recovering hit points um, is something that is hard in the game. Sure, yeah. But it could be a feat that's almost useless if you rarely have to make death saves because of the way the game runs, or if you're always healing and it's very easy to get back hit points, uh, then it's it's less. So it, it needs, it's a feat that needs the game to know what the game is going to do before we know the value of yeah. that feat. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we do see some uh, epic boons as feats, so, which is interesting here. So they, they basically turn them into feats. Um, mm-hmm. I'd actually forgotten about this when I shared the sidebar earlier. Yeah. So they have a whole bunch of epic boons that are now considered to be feats. And then these often have as a prerequisite, the group, right? We talked about how the classes now exist in like an expert group or warrior group or mage group. So we see some of those being assigned here for these boons. The boons are otherwise pretty simple to what we've seen or similar to what we've seen before, which is to say, I'm not super excited about them. You know, we just out of the blue had a a tweet bag question sort of right before this expert pack dropped, this one D&D playtest dropped asking about epic boons and you and i were not super positive about them yeah. and and now they're you know the thing you're really supposed to be super excited about at 20th level is, is a feat choice every thirty thousand xp eh. yeah i mean i don't i don't hate them i just right. don't know how often they're going to come into play and what they do for the game if you're already 20th level but. yeah i mean when i think of like say how fourth edition and third edition had things like paragon paths and the stories, especially the, 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 the four E version where, you know, you had a, a, you know, your initial choice and then you, your paragon path and you had your epic destiny. Right. Mm-hmm. And that really highlighted the level, the, the, the kind of the highest levels of play and how you were going to sort of this greater place and what your role was in the world. That to me was pretty exciting. Uh, and unlocking those benefits was very exciting. Mm-hmm. To me, these sort of boons were, you know, I can now Misty Step. Cool. There's some characters who can do that at first level. <laughs> you know, like, it's true. Uh, here I am, the mightiest 20th level person, and I can, and now, now this may be very useful because you want to get out of bad situations and high level play has them, 
But to me, it's not a great story thing, right? That's the difference between the utility of Misty Step and whether this really captures the concept that I am whatever it is, you know, the far traveler ranger that can go through time and space as easily as jungle or tundra i, I don't you know this is what did you do oh, i missed a step now yeah mm-hmm. yeah and, and as they made epic boons and defeats they also made fighting styles and defeats yeah. with the prerequisite being you must be part of the warrior group so here we see these class groups coming into play that, that we talked about um which i i i don't know what i think about them yet i i'm I don't love it. I don't hate it. But I think it can sometimes be confusing if you are trying to teach a character to a player to build a character and you're like, okay, and you get to choose a feat. And then you, they start going through the feats. Oh, I want to take this one. Well, you're not in the warrior group. You're in the expert group. So you really can't take that feat. So separating them out and making them as feats, but then restricting them. I, I don't know whether I'd rather just keep them in each class description and and let them let the rest of the, let the rule rest there as opposed to here. Yeah, and I think it's also that you know how much uniqueness you're giving. Third edition saw this a lot, where it was you know oh the ranger attacks with lots of attacks, right? You know dual wielding, and and then you were like, or the cleric can cast two spells and they do it better. It's eh, a problem, yeah. right? Or well, I took a feat, so I actually, you know, Ranger, I'm doing the same cool thing you're doing. And because of doing this other thing, I'm also doing it better. Mm-hmm. You know, so there's always that danger that you just intrude upon each other's space. Um, weapon or fighting styles sort of already did that a little bit because a couple of class, classes have them in different ways in the current game. But I don't super love having them as feats because it tends to to just... It also begs, to me, these are things that are, are about character construction mm-hmm. rather than any kind of story. And and I don't love, I, I want feats to be more about distinguishing our character. And of course, they're going to have uh, construction to them, right? They're going to be about right. mechanics. But I want that story to shine. That mm-hmm. the idea, if you're taking actor, that that appeals to you in some way as a concept. Mm-hmm. And fighting still styles tend to get into something that if if this was going to be about the story of your character, well, probably your class would already have told that story. Mm-hmm. All right. D- I want you to put in your DM hat to answer this question for me, Deus. Mm-hmm. Are you ready? I am on. playing a fighter with the fighting style of archery. And I have a spear. And I throw my spear at the enemy and hit. Uh, or or th- throw the spear at my enemy. Do I, if, if I have the archery fighting style where it says you gain a plus two bonus to attack rolls you make with ranged weapons, do I get a plus two on that thrown spear attack? If it's on the ranged weapon chart, then yes. Okay. Uh, so do I get the attack if I use my spear to stab with rather than thrown? <laughs> that becomes unclear as to what they intend. Yeah. Okay. I, I, I just, yeah, I was curious about what you would say. That's where I feel like, like I can tell you what I think, but yeah. at that, you know, but now I'm telling you what I think, not, not, an, you know, not what the rule says. Right. It's not, it's to me, the idea that it's a ranged weapon is fairly black and white, but now I go, wow, did they really intend this? Right. So mm-hmm. if I, if I, if I have to absolutely parse it, I'd say, well, it's either a ranged weapon or it isn't. So if it was ranged weapon and it doesn't say that you have to use it as a throne or ranged attack, then sure, I guess you do according to this wording. Okay. But I don't know that they meant that. Right. And I kind okay. of doubt they did. But yeah, <laughs> that, the fighting that's... style is archery, not stab. Right. Yeah. I Again, yeah. just just a question. Yep. Uh, let's see. What, what other things came up in the feats that, that caught your eye? So a big one is Great Weapon Master. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a feat that, you know, felt like one of those things that you just have to take when you're using a great weapon and they, they made it not as strong. So what it now does is that it's simply, and I don't necessarily love this, but at least it's very transparent as to what it's doing. When you hit a creature with a heavy weapon as part of the attack action on your turn, you can cause the weapon to deal extra damage to the target, which equals your proficiency bonus, but only once per turn. And it has to be your turn. So, okay, 
Now that's very different from saying I'm going to take a minus five penalty to attack and deal 10 extra damage. And I've rigged my character to always hit. So I'm always getting plus 10 damage right now. We've, we've lowered that substantially. And what I then immediately want to talk about is sharpshooter mm -hmm. because sharpshooter was basically the same kind of thing for ranged with some other nice boons about ignoring cover and stuff. Right now it has no bonus to damage. So they changed great weapon master in a particular way that it's still desirable, right? Adding your proficiency bonus to damage is cool. Uh, sharpshooter allows you to ignore most cover, which I think a lot of DMs don't super love. Uh, fire adjacent to a foe without taking disadvantage for doing so and attack at long range without disadvantage. But there's no bonus to damage whatsoever, which will cause it to be overlooked by a lot of players, right? So yeah. I thought it was supremely interesting how different the approach was between what were two feats used in very similar ways. Now they are very different yeah. feats. And when you see that change, it makes you, it makes me say, do they want to not nerf, but do they want to reduce the amount of damage that ranged, ranged. Uh, attackers do to make the game more about fighting, more about that melee, um, yeah. that rather than having a party of six just ranged people just running around the board uh, and yeah. firing. And we've seen this before. Like in 4th edition, there were a number of things that rogues... There were changes made to rogues that made it harder and harder for them to deal range damage. Right. And when I pointed that out to wizards, what I was told by designers was, yes, that is intentional. <laughs> we are yeah. shutting that, you know, in our mind, the rogue is not a ranged rogue, except mm -hmm. in limited ways. Like you can be one, but you're mm -hmm. not as good. Like that's just our view of the world. <laughs> and right. I'm like, what? Why? But, uh, but I mean, that may be the case here, right? They may just be like, yeah, great weapon fighters should hit hard. Archers shouldn't. Yeah. Maybe. Yep. Uh, heavy armor master. Before it was, uh, you always got three damage reduction, and now it is reduced by your proficiency bonus. So, you know, it's going to increase with with your level. I think that's totally fine. You know, one that I've complained about, inspiring leader is this feat where you would um, grant your level plus charisma modifier in temporary hit points to people, and now it's two d four plus your proficiency bonus. And that is kind of, in some ways, good in terms of being like a, a more like per the game, the intention of their game and how how it should work. But um, it's a weaker choice given how many ways there are to give out temps. And so I was surprised to see this kind of still survive. Like it's almost a feat that I don't know why you'd take it when there's so many ways that the game gives out temporary hit points. Mm -hmm. I think you'll just be, as my character was, who took Inspiring Leader, very disappointed when you go to give them out and nobody needs them, or you know, you're only giving them like one more temp over whatever else gave them temps. So mm -hmm. I thought that was surprising. Yeah, I, I I laughed at Elemental Adept. Yeah, which you know, the first part of it, it's like choose one of the following damage types, and it lists them all. Uh, you can re ignore resistance to damage of the chosen type, and I'm like, okay, that sort of makes sense. And then the second thing was, in addition, when you roll damage for a spell that deals with that type of damage, treat any one on a damage die as two. I was like, mm -hmm. really? Is is that... I wonder what that works out to in terms of extra damage over the course of your character's um, life. life. Yeah. yeah, and I mean, I mean, I guess it's like how many you know are you rolling a bunch of damage dice so that all those ones get a plus one does that yeah do you want people doing this <laughs> right how do, what math does that add to the game if at all i don't know it was just it's right. just I, I kind of i kind of chuckled um so another one that caught mine was well go ahead did you look at Keen Mind? Uh, it it used to be sort of, you know, which way is north and you could recall some details, know when the sunrise, sunset was. It's one of these things that there have been several things and in, in that we used to have a little more of an exploration DM judgment call as, you know, and player ingenuity type approach. Now it's like, hey, you get one of these skills with expertise. So choose a skill to have expertise and uh, you can take the study action as a bonus action. 
And that's fascinating because you, you, you took away all the interpretable stuff. So right. now it's very prescriptive as to what this does, very mechanical. And you've said, I have a special ability to make the study action a bonus action. Mm-hmm. So now as a DM, if you take what is under the, under the study action and right. you make that either a bonus or no action for other characters, right. you're penalizing the person who chose keen mind. Right. I really dislike when those situations come up where you've, you've, you're, it's like you're imposing what the mechanics must be for things that DMs are already doing or naturally going to do. Yeah. I want yeah, to make I, an ins, you know, I want to make a, uh, um, uh, what do you call it? The um, investigation check, right? Well, that now mm-hmm. has to be an action. Right. Because otherwise I'm really hurting the person that took your friend that took keen mind over there. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it sort of begs the question of what an average DM or what an average game does where the rules don't come right out and tell you how it should work. So you hope then that the game will come out and tell you, this is how we see this working and that's why we're giving you this this benefit. Uh, but the game has to be explicit and specific in, in the rules that it's exceptioning uh, <laughs> in this exception-based game. To, to know what the baseline is. How about Ritual Caster? So this is one, you know, where we're no longer are you having casters be Ritual Casters or not. So you'd think this feat would just go away, but no. Instead, what it does is you choose spells that have the Ritual tag from either Arcane, Divine, or Primal spell lists. You always have these two spells that you've chosen prepared, and you can cast them with any spell slots you have. So it's it's really a get around the limitations we gave you on these spell charts. It's not, um, you know, it's 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 really funny way of repurposing what used to be. Hey, you can cast as a right. ritualist, right? It's it's two more spells that you can cast normally, right? And of course, you can cast uh, the spell as a ritual using its regular casting time rather than the extended ritual time, but you can only yeah. do that. Um, a number of times per long rest, uh, once per long rest, I should say. Shield Master, I thought was interesting. Um, you know, you increase your strength score, and then before it was sort of like this bonus action to do the shield bash. Now it's part of the attack action. And so, what's good about that is that if you had to use your bonus action for other stuff, well, hey, you just got your bonus action back. Now it's as you're doing your attack action you can also bash their shield, and that's neat. I like that part, um, though they get a strength save to withstand it. Um, what The downside of it is that you are slowing down play because you're basically saying you should always shield bash. Mm-hmm. Right mm-hmm. now, whenever you're doing the attack action with a melee weapon, someone who's next to you, shield bash because you, know, you can knock them yeah. prone. And right. so there's going to be a save at the end of every single one of your attacks to make this, you know, every round you're going to do this because why wouldn't you? Yeah, yeah. I I, uh, I did note that and I noted it also affected other rules, uh, which we'll probably talk about next time. And I was just like, we don't need more attacks. Uh, at least I haven't, my 5e games have not, uh, especially at higher levels, suffered from a lack of number of attacks per character Um, yeah so yeah anything else that jumped out to you no i nothing else in terms of the the uh feats themselves you know there were some things i want okay uh but you know i'm not a big feat fan yeah uh so i i just i want this system to be different um yeah I I want it. I'm fine with a feat system if it replaces other choices that the player would normally have to make. So cut down on what a race or a, a background will give you, and let let them choose feats. But by having racial abilities or background abilities or species or uh, heritage or lineage or whatever. Having a bunch of stuff there and then a bunch of stuff with backgrounds and then a bunch of stuff for your class. And then on top of that, a bunch of feats. 
gets too much. So I would want less in other areas if you're going to add this feat uh, feature to the game. Yeah, and I think that, you know, when we've talked about feats in the past, what would... Uh bothered me and i don't know that you know if this is true of you to you or not but some of the feats feel like they are character concepts right like inspiring leader is this concept of how i rally my my mm-hmm. companions but then it's a very simple effect of granting temporary hit points and that's not the worst but i i get a concept and a very light thing and then others have like four things that you do right and then some of them are choose three languages right and then some of them are deal a bunch of damage <laughs> so it's like i have trouble understanding what feats are trying to do in the game as mm-hmm. as it exists in the 2014 edition so i wanted a new system to give me the aha of oh it's a very clear vision here's mm-hmm. what feats do and i don't really come away with that um right. it's no different on that vision of what they do for the game obviously customizing but if anything it feels more mechanical mm-hmm. Uh, less story-based. I feel like I'm, even when I'm not getting more feats, the way this is all presented makes me feel like I'm getting more feats. Like they rise in prominence within the 5th edition game because of the way they now get ability scores more often and and there's sort of more to them a lot of times. So it feels like feats are more weighty in the game and more important to my character, but they don't do any more narrative work. So I like them less, Mm -hmm. I think. Yeah. And, and this is all preference, right? There, there are likely yeah. people out there very excited about getting to pick a feat every four levels and have them increase in power the higher they go, and well, having them chain together to do yeah. cool and amazing things. And uh, I can do that, right? Like, like once it, once I'm just sitting there making a character, right? I am making my sorceress, and I'm going to give her these capabilities. Okay, you know that's where I start digging into this, and I enjoy it at that level because I'm just funneling in on my character and making my character cool and and do wild stuff and be powerful but as a designer when i step back and look at the process that's where i want it to be different right where Mm -hmm. where i think there are games out there that have a stronger narrative approach to parts of the game that customize you Mm -hmm. and 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 then there are games that are too mechanic-y when it comes to the parts that you're cut that you're customizing about yourself So, and in some ways, I think the construction of feats is blurring more with the construction of subclasses as they're presented in this packet Mm -hmm. to where they're almost interchangeable, you know, oh, did you get, you know, dual weapon fighting from this or from that or from the other, like it could be anything. And so now they don't have, you know, like a concrete space that really feels as theirs in terms of the game. And And I think that's very confusing for new players but also just waters things down where you just don't even know why a character does what they do, right? I, I prefer, and I think when I look at just the player's handbook as it stands, it's pretty easy to know why a character does what they do. Mm-hmm. But some of the the reconstruction that I see in the D&D 1 packets, it becomes harder to know why a character does what they do. Yeah. Well, that is our depth, in-depth look at feats in this second one D&D playtest packet. And we will end there. We can look later at the spell list and the rules glossary, which has its own set of interesting themes and specifics to discuss. But we're going to end there. And I want to thank everybody for listening. And thank you to our patrons. And we're going to jump right into hearing where Teos can uh, provide his expertise on the Internet. Find me at alphastream.org. Uh, from that website, you can get to everywhere else that I do things and on Twitter at alphastream. What about you, Sean? Where do we get you, the Sean Goodness? You, you can find the Sean Goodness on Twitter at Sean Merwin. Uh, you can also follow the podcast at Mastering D&D. Mastering Dungeons is a misdirected Mark production. So, Teos, I know what we're going to do now. We're going to get on plane or get in a car and we're going to drive the game home con. Yeah, we are. All right. We'll see everybody there. Uh, Have a great week. (laughs)